Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series, featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. Please join me in welcoming Elena Romero in conversation with Dapper Dan and Jeriana San Juan on hip hop and fashion. For close to 45 years, hip hop has made its mark on the US culture and on the world. Comprised of the MC, known as the rapper, the DJ, graffiti artists, and b-boys and b-girls, breakdancers, the culture has impacted people across the globe and unified youth of all colors. Its most prevalent identification, the uniform on the streets relabeled today streetwear, which was once pigeonholed by the term urban and hip-hop. As I write in my book, Freestyling, How Hip-Hop Changed the Fashion Industry, by the late 80s and early 90s, Isaac Misrahi and Carl Lagerfeld for Chanel started showing collections inspired by hip-hop on the runway. Sportswear designers would soon catch on and cash in on a movement in development. An eclectic style, originally comprised of borrowed looks from designer and popular brands, hip-hop would eventually evolve into a worldwide fashion phenomenon and with brand identifiers of their very own. Early pioneers included Cross Colors, Carl Kanai, Maurice Malone, April Walker, and of course, Harlem legend, custom designer, the one and only Dapper Dan. Now you see, well before Nike had apparel, Dap had been making Nike fashion in addition to his signature Gucci outfits made famous by Eric B. and Raquel. A 24-hour custom boutique located on 125th Street between 5th and Madison Avenues, his shop catered to the lifestyle of the rich legally and illegally and famous. It was a 2407 custom tailor shop that was ahead of its time, and Dap could make anything from casual streetwear and tailor suits to, in fact, car interiors. The next wave of brands took it up a notch, thrusting sales to new heights, helping cement the legacy of the market. FUBU hit the $350 million mark. It, along with designers such as Maurice Malone, Pele Pele, Echo Unlimited, broke barriers as the first to show on the 7th on 6th runway in New York during Men's Fashion Week about 20 years ago. What was once limited to mom-and-pop specialty stores in the hood would now become readily wares found at your local department stores and internationally. And at its peak, the fashion category represented a $58 billion business, according to the NPD Group in 2002. Today, what was once labeled urban has now been remixed and morphed under a more broader and more widely acceptable term of streetwear, encompassing a mesh of different consumers and styles. We are here with designer Dapalet Dan, along with FIT alum and costume designer uh, of the Netflix original TV series, The Get Down, Jeriana San Juan, to get their perspective on hip hop and its influence in fashion. Please help me uh, welcome our guests.
right, Deb, so we're going to start with you. Tell us a bit about your fashion design, your story, and how we came to know the legend named Dapper Dan. Okay. Um, my story is like I'm a hustler slash designer. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my story is one of um, how to leave the streets and do something positive in the community that uh, will change the way the community is represented. So when I first went into business, I thought it was going to be, okay, I'm going to open up a store and I'm going to sell clothes. I, you know, I thought that was it. Like I read Terry Agin's book and after the fact, yeah, and um, Subculture by Dick Hittridge, and of course your book. And, but in the beginning, none of this was there for me. So I came into the industry, everything organic. So I had to teach myself everything. So I started out selling furs, because I figured that my community, they're not really familiar. They don't know a lot about furs, so I can introduce them to the fur industry. And I did quite well for a while. And then what happened was this new company had just started. It, it was uh, Andrew Mark. And I used to buy furs from the father. So they said, look, my son, he's opening up a business. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, he's going to be selling um, leather coats with fur linings. I said, great. So I'll go see him. So I'll go see him, and there's another competitive store owned by the other people. And they're selling the jackets for $1,200. And I know they're buying them wholesale for $400. I said, wow. <laughs> so I went and bought the jackets for $400, and I'm selling the same jackets for 800 they found out that I was underselling them and came, went back to Andrew and Mark. Andrew and Mark is two really cool guys. They say, Dan, you know, you're a good customer. We like you. You're a nice guy. He said, but we can't sell to you no more. I said, you can't sell to me no more. He said, yeah, because they have five stores. And if we sell to you, then they're going to pull the account out. I got very upset. So what I did was, I had spent a lot of time in Africa, and while I was in Africa, I had African tailors. So it occurred to me, I said, wait a minute, maybe I should just get me some African tailors and make these jackets myself. <laughs> and so I began to start making myself. So I had to teach myself the whole business. But now in the fur business and the leather business, is like, that's seasonal. So I needed something that was going to be available to me all year round. So I came up with this idea, and I noticed a guy came in one day with a Louis Vuitton little clutch bag, and I saw how everybody was fascinated. I said, okay. <laughs> and so I started researching the symbols on the bag to see exactly what it meant. And then I taught myself textile printing. I said, well, if, he's, if they're fascinating over this little bag, imagine if they had the whole outfit. So I said, you know, I'm going to transform these people into luggage. <laughs> so I mean, one or two little LVs and get them like that. Imagine what the whole outfit is doing. So I taught myself textile printing, and I came up with the concept on how to uh, print on leather. And then after that, it's just, it, it's a flow. So now, me, the, the hustler side of me, so I knew all the hustlers in Harlem. I'm born and raised in Harlem. So now all the hustlers coming in, you know. The hustlers gravitated towards what I was doing quicker than, you know, like uh, the bougie Miswire class because they want, they want to go downtown. 
You know, but the hustlers, when they come to me, like you see, hear some of the stories in there, when I see a hustler coming through the door, I jump up and run to the door. I'm going to make them feel very welcome, you know, and sit them down, make them feel important. And what I learned growing up was like I was deprived, had holes in my shoes and all of that there. So I understood how clothes can transform a person. You know, so I say, wow. So I came up with, I say, I got to use the Cinderella program. You know, somebody can come in, get an outfit from me, and it changed their whole world. They feel more important and feel better about themselves. So all my customers, I would treat them special, royal, you know, and I would act like they all was rich. Everybody come through that door was rich and important. So after a while, I started catering to all the hustlers and, you know, people who gravitated towards the hustler style because the hustlers in Harlem was the ones who really who generated the trend because they had the money and they could afford the expensive stuff at the price I was selling. Mention so how much you were selling that, these. Excuse me? How much were you selling these for? Uh, okay, the cheapest, the cheapest item was like a uh, sweatsuit, and you're talking in the 80s, and that was $1,200. All right, and so as a result of the hustlers coming in all the time, now rap was just beginning. So now the rappers coming in and they want to be like the hustlers. Right? And so they started copying everything the hustlers was and then telling the hustler story. So once rap went global, <laughs> then the rappers were spending more money than the hustlers. So the hustlers used to start and start the trend. Now it's the rappers that start the trend. So now they displaying my stuff on UMTV and all of a sudden, then Mike Tyson comes. Mike Tyson comes in the store and gets into this big fight, and they start. With Mitch Green. Everybody starts saying, you know, other people start, you know, the industry starts, well, who is this? <laughs> Who's this Dapper Dan up in Harlem, you know? And they start going, and then, you know, they, they started raiding the store and, and the suits, you know, Louis Vuitton and Fendi. I never forget the day, like, um, Chief Justice Olga Mayor, she was the uh, lawyer for um, Fendi. And she came in the store. I had just made a coat for uh, uh, Big Daddy Kane. It was plonge leather, full-length plonge leather, uh, black. You know, it was black on black, uh, black on black MCM. The collar was uh, uh, black mink uh, glamour, you know. And it was tuxedo to that. She saw the coach. She said, wow, this guy belongs downtown. But she still raided me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she still raided me. So the raids kept coming. The raids kept coming, you know. And then Ted Demi, God bless him. Ted Demi from Yota MTV, he told me, he said, Dan, he said, man, you are what's happening. He said, um, whenever you call me, I'm coming up here with the film crew. So I got a lot of exposure on MTV. We didn't have no social media then, so MTV was the vehicle. So I'm getting a lot of, you know, uh, publicity through MTV. Then one day now, you see what happened with, with, with Andrew Mark. Now, Ted Demi, I know he really cares for me like Andrew and Mark came from. He comes to me one day, he said that. He said, um, we can't display your stuff no more on MTV. I said, you can't display my stuff. He said, no, anything that the rappers wear that you have, we have to blur it out. So Dapper Dan invented the blur. You see, the, you, see, <laughs> <laughs> you see how you watch TV now and they blur out 
items, and so, and that was the result of that. So, lo and behold, the rappers took the, the clothes game around the world, and they forgot about where they started at. You know, and then Tommy Hilfiger came and sent Andy Hilfiger uptown, and they, they discovered this whole rap scene and the, uh, how lucrative this business was going to be. And the story is history from there. Mm. I want to keep on talking to you for a little bit. Mm -hmm. How have you seen black designers embrace in the fashion industry, and how has that changed over the course of your career? Okay, um, how I see fashion, you know, I would have to talk about the industry in general and the amount of money that it generates. I see um, fashion is the vehicle. Culture is the wheels on the vehicle. Mm -hmm. So, like, if they put us, if we allow them to put us in the back seat and they do the driving, and they, don't, they have not embraced the culture, they're gonna take us where they want us to go. You know, so what we have to do is make sure we in the driver's seat. And then to do that, we got to, we got to patronize each other and we gotta look at what's taking place in the industry. You know what I mean? They, um, I don't wanna mention any particular names, but they use us as window dressing to make us think that we have penetrated the industry. But you know, our numbers are real tiny. And we need to turn that around. So in terms of the, I want to support all the, you know, um, all the, the, you know, models and everybody in the industry. But what we have to be, what we have to realize, and we have to do this together. Like, you know, when I started out, Sean, like Sean John Puff Daddy was, he was a, a intern for Andre Harrell, who had Uptown Records. I used to loan Andre Harrell clothes for his acts. They didn't have money then, you know? LL Cool J, you know, he's, I tease him now about the $2,200 that he owes me. The rappers, <laughs> you know, and, and Teddy Riley, I got, I got a bounce check from him. So these guys forget where the roots, is, where these things come from, so they don't look back. Now they're representing brands that we don't get anything out of, you know? Well, they need to promote, you know, black designers and, and minority designers. So they, they've taken everything away from us with our platform, you know? So um, I think we need to have a collaboration where um, we come together, because we're not gonna be able to do it independently. We have to come together as a group to, uh, to fix that situation, yeah. So I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Uh, Jeriana, your career has covered the worlds of film, TV, music videos, theater. You've had quite a task ahead of yourself recreating these nostalgic hip-hop styles in the 1970s uh, inspired show, The Get Down, on Netflix. <laughs> you know, the South Bronx becomes the background to this new hip-hop inspired action-packed modern-day telenovela conquering love, friendships, family dynamics, and survival skills mixing historical events and people with pure fiction to, tune, to the tune of disco and hip-hop. So how important was staying true to that era? And what approach did you take to create the characters and the looks of those characters? Um, well, I'll, I'll preface by saying that, um, you know, when I 
was handed the very heavy baton of, of doing this show, um, I had a, a meeting with Baz uh, Lerman, who directed the first episode and um, produced the show. And he asked me about who I am, and I sort of very funnily kind of described myself as a designer and a hustler. <laughs> um, I, uh, my introduction to fashion had always been, uh, you know, being, a, you know, coming up in, in Miami from an all-Cuban family and always kind of having the aspiration but never the capability. And uh, it was very meaningful to me, this story, because I, I felt such an identity with it and I felt such a passion about uh, how kind of synonymous the music and the fashion of hip-hop are. And when I, you know, again, was given this kind of monstrous task of, of communicating this story, which is, you know, my job as a costume designer, I do projects that are, you know, 1930s or futuristic or prehistoric, whatever it is. When I approached this, I sort of went, you know, I need to go to the source. Um, it needed to be as authentic as possible, um, as real as possible, you know, that, that time period and that it sort of big bang in culture. It, it really was, I mean, it, it was this moment where, you know, it was a big bang. So all of a sudden something was created that wasn't there before. And it was with whatever resources were around and it created a multi-billion dollar industry. So I felt kind of this, uh, this, this task of telling not only the story, you know, I'm given a script and, and my job as a costume designer is to, you know, tell the story of the characters and, and really communicate as much as I can about the character through the clothes. And uh, I sort of felt like I was telling two stories. I was telling the story of, uh, you know, each individual character, the books, the Shaolin Fantastic, all of the different characters, but then I was also telling the story of the birth of this fashion movement. Mm. Um, and it really was about, in the very initial phase of, of this uh, process of, of my research, to not only go through you know, Joe Conzo and Jamil Shabazz photos, but also to go to, uh, you know, we were fortunate enough to have great uh, uh, advising producers on the show, like Grandmaster Flash and Cool Herc and uh, Curtis Blow, and, and I was able to talk to them directly about, you know, what were the kind of the seeds of that fashion movement, and, and you know, it really became as simple as, you know, um, using, you know, what you have and, and making it, like, a movement, making it, making it a statement. And that can be as simple as coordinating your sneakers with your hat or wearing your sneakers in a certain way. And, you know, it always kind of goes back to the same principles, you know, it's, it's so universal, you know, it's the same principles I had as a kid in Miami, like have, wear your cleanest, nicest clothes so everybody thinks you're rich. <laughs> like, that's what I grew up like. And it was the same, it was a lot of the same principles, you know, dress like royalty and you are royalty. And, um, 
and that w that's really where it started, and that's where so many of the principles for characters like Shell and Fantastic started, where it was about dressing in you know bright primary colors and and drawing from Asian culture and and sort of the the Tao of what Grandmaster Flash was teaching, and and the red, white, and black, and uh, it really kind of started from there, and then from for me kind of moved into this um, you know primary kind of sweep of giving each character a kind of distinctive color palette so that we could always find them and know them and kind of, um, you know, Baz has this way of always creating a mythology behind the characters in, his, in, uh, in each of his movies. And it was really about kind of creating a real specific identity for each character. And um, when I started to dive into this, I kind of I had no idea how how deep all of it was, and when I went, started to go into character, you know, Jaden Smith plays a character named Dizzy, who's a young artist and a graffiti writer, and and when I started to dive into the different graffiti artists that were around at the time and the graffiti culture of of uh, painting your cut sleeves and doing your own jacket and. Uh, I reached out to Lady Pink, who is a famous Latina graffiti artist from the time, and she did a custom jacket. That's the jacket he wears on the show. Um, and, you know, I started looking at designers from the time, like Patrick Kelly, and, you know, who's featured in the, in the museum, um, you know, and the buttons, and that kind of became the inspiration for the, all the buttons that are wearing, worn in uh, his costumes through the show. Um, it was just, it's limitless. It's, it's such a rich... Uh, kind of undertold story, and it really made me feel uh, just this tremendous sensibility, uh, this responsibility to to tell it with truth, and um, and you know, and also do the job of, you know, kind of heightening it and and bringing it in in kind of technicolor to to a young audience who has who thinks that hip hop started in 1985. <laughs> talk a little bit about the image we're seeing above? Um, so this is like kind of a perfect example of, um, of the character Shellen Fantastic who is a young prodigy of Grandmaster Flash and the story. And um, uh, what it really started with was uh, I had a, a kind of explosively amazing conversation with Grandmaster Flash who um, I'm fortunate enough to, to call a dear friend now and, um, and he schooled me. He, he taught me everything there is to know about uh, what were kind of the ingredients of, of fashion at the time, which, you know, came down to the tracksuit and his Kangol, you know, which he described to me as, as not wearing as a hat, but wearing as his crown. And um, I took that to heart. You know, it's, uh, it's not just a, a hat. It's not. It's, it is your crown. It's all about how you wear it and you tilt it so that, you know, you're not wearing it like anybody else. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is kind of, you know, a very excellent il illustration because it really was about, um, you know, that palette, the colors um, kind of moving through. And I did that with the different kind of schools of early hip hop. So there's, you know, there's like an Africa Bambada color palette that follows Africa Bambada and his, um, you know, disciples, you know, and, and same thing with Cool Herc and same thing with Flash. So, um, you know, Flash's color story was all about red, white, and black, again, tying back to, um, you know, very uh, classic Chinese colors and, and just went from there. What about this one? Um, 
Well, this is an awesome photo. <laughs> um, so this is a, a scene from uh, one of the first get downs in, in the show, the first get down in the show. And um, you know, you'll see books here. It's, um, you can't really see it in this photo, but he's wearing like a, a kind of crazy Afro jazz, like a denim patchwork suit. And I found this um, pair of jeans uh, from the early 1970s that had this like gorgeous, multicolored leather rainbow stripe that went over them and I just got, you know, so inspired. I woke up at like some crazy hour, went right, right to Baz and I was like, I, I need you to look at this, this is what I'm thinking. And um, it turned into that crazy suit that he's wearing and it really was about um, making it visually very jarring in, in context of the scene. You know, he's walking around thinking that he's fly and, and that is how hip hop, um, you know, really started was, you know, hip hop musicians didn't wear track suits on stage, they wore suits on stage. Mm -hmm. It was about, um, you know, dressing classy and dressing as, as you know, fashionably crisp uh, as possible, you know, uh, the, again, the aspiration. And it, it really turned into this very different adaptation of let, uh, let's speak to what we are and let's wear what we would do on the streets. And it turned into tracksuits and it turned into athletic wear. Um, and so this scene was basically kind of telling that story. You know, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, early hip hop footage and photographs and, um, and I was able to talk to, you know, the real guys that were there about the fact that, you know, you had, uh, you know, rappers like cowboy on, on the stage dressed like a full-on cowboy or, you know, <laughs> um, you know, the Cold Crush Brothers in all beautiful silver suits. And, and that quickly changed, that, that um, narrative quickly changed about um, actually embracing what, what people wear and, and what b-boys wear and, and, you know, who b-boys are and what the culture is it was like it was it just totally changed that dialogue so this was like walking into a get down that was this colorful vibrant kind of uh steaming amazing party and here are all these kids dressed in shorts sneakers tube socks kangles uh bucket caps you know and and they, they look vibrant and sexy and amazing. And he just feels like, I want to take this suit off. <laughs> and I want to be comfortable. And I want to dance. And I want to be like these kids. Here's another shot, if you could talk about this one. Uh, uh, so this is an illustration of the vest that was, um, that was painted by Lady Pink. Um, and the buttons, again, were, were a direct, um, directly inspired by, uh, by Patrick Kelly. Um, and the character in general was just really um, kind of a patchwork canvas to incorporate all of these, you know, f these fashion elements from early 1970s black fashion designers, uh, you know, uh, everything from Stephen Burroughs, Patrick Kelly, you name it. And, and the, actually that vest, I'll tell you about this vest, this vest came from a photo um, that had a young uh, gang member in his cut sleeves jacket and it was the most beautiful photo. It's this kid, he can't be more than 12 years old. And um, he had cut the collar off of a fur coat and worn it. And again, it's like that idea of you dress like royalty and you are royalty. He had a necklace 
po posed up on his head. He had a fur collar. And I, I kind of just looked at that and went, well, that's Dizzy, you know? He's like inventing his own music in his head. He's marching to the beat of his own drummer. And that's where the fur collar were, that he wears, that's where that comes from. Um, you know, the 1970s polyester pants. I mean, we wanted to tell the story. I mean, it was important, again, to tell the whole arc of the story, to start where it started <laughs> and, um, and then move through the incorporation and, and the adaptation of, of embracing tracksuits and leisure wear and, and starting to elevate that. So it needed to have, you know, to have an end, you have to have a beginning and a middle. So this was really about that. All right, if you can help me thank these guests. Do we have time for a question or two? We do have time, so if there's any questions that you guys have. Um, I was wondering, I think now in fashion, largely, there's a lot of collaboration. Uh, new designers are working, like Fetima, where they're going and working with a lot of already established, well-known brands. Do you find that now, I find in many ways, what they're doing now is what you were doing in working with already those established brands. Do you find that interesting now that it's okay? And did do you find any anger in that? And also, have you ever been, you know, at any point with large labels, have you ever been asked to actually have a creative director role in the 90s where label became, you know, largely influenced of what was being made in Parisian fashion, like Gucci and Chanel, et cetera? You know, it's, it's, that's kind of like ironic for me because you see designers come about and they're collaborating with brands. But that's the opposite of actually what I did. I collaborated with the, the consumer, you know? Their ideas came to me, so I bought it straight from the street. This here is, you know, that's something altogether different. You're not feeling exactly the pulse of the street, but the feel of the designer. Yeah. So. I do think it's interesting, though, to your point, that you did invent that. <laughs> you did invent that. And, um, and it kind of turned on its nose in a way that, you know, it's just not, it's not right. Yeah. I have a question um, also for Dapper Down. I was wondering, how, you f how do you feel about the fact that your work um, really incited the use of logos more broadly um, on clothing by the very company that accuse you of counterfeiting them. So we return and Gucci started using logo much more prominently, particularly in the early O's. Was What's uh, your relation to that? I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite hear the question. What was it? How do you feel about the brands like Gucci um, showcasing logos more as a result of a direct impact or association to what you did? Oh, exactly. uh, <laughs> well, that's a question that uh, I will be addressing later. <laughs> you know, there's a, there'll be, you know, a much larger uh, narrative on that later on. Yeah. Hi, Mr. Dan, nice to meet you. I'm a very big fan. I from Har I'm from Harlem as well, and I'm also a hustler, so I want to know this from you. Um, uh, can, you can you hear me now? Yeah. You can hear me? Okay, Dapper Dan. So since you're a hustler, since you're from Harlem, I just wanted to know, what did you do? Were you more focused on your sketch pad and getting these designs out, or were you more focused on just bringing it to life in the shop? I'm sorry, repeat the question for me. Where did you put more of your focus on? 
on the sketches, on the designs, or even that little black book that okay. he had all those contacts Here's a, here's a little saying we had in the store, right? Because, uh, you know, like I said, we collaborated with, the, with, with, with people. When they come in with an idea in their mind, but we first tell them, we say, like, you got to remember, everything in your mind might not look good on your behind. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, so I would sit down with them and, you know, and find a way to, ex to explain to them what would how they would, <laughs> what would be best suited for them. Right, right, yeah. right. But, you know, design and sketching, everything was like, everything like I said, it was organic. Together. We just created from there, from, from zero. We went from zero to hero. Yeah. Okay.